Ajansona, I would like to ask you to talk about natural human. And by natural human, I mean human who is not acquainted with their mind, ah. with the workings of their mind, is largely unaware of the workings of their mind. And then about training of one's own mind towards liberation, as understood in Buddhism. So doing something unnatural, like training your own mind, to get to something that is of a higher nature. Yeah, so start at the beginning. There's a beautiful saying, one of the best sayings I ever heard from the Zen school was Japanese Zen master, I can't remember who it was, but he said, it never occurs to the ordinary person to control their own mind. And that's before I meditated, it never occurred to me to control my own mind. <laughs> it can, I mean, I, I thought about things. I had, you know, an assignment to do or a, a goal or something like that. And I followed it, but that's a different thing. The idea of interrupting your mind in its workings never occurs to the ordinary person. They follow wherever the mind leads, they follow and they, they do not stand outside their mind. They're engulfed in their mind. They're, they're immersed in the mind. So this is, uh, when you first come to meditation, this odd instruction to sit there and watch your mind and so forth. And, and you suddenly encounter the unbelievably stubborn nature of the mind. It won't it won't stay here. There's a weird self-consciousness about the whole thing. There's a sense that you're just pretending. And as you close your eyes and you stare at, you know, sort of focus on your breath, because your mind has never really been asked to do this before. It's like a, it's like a, an untamed, untrained dog. You call it, it doesn't pay any attention, it wanders around and barks and scratches and it's just completely unreceptive to its interaction. Occasionally, occasionally it'll glimpse you and, and look at you and then get lost in something else. And people have to live with this thing. And it doesn't matter. People can be very intelligent. They can, um, sometimes they'll follow a stream of thoughts in a very concentrated way for extended periods of time. They'll be lost in a book or something. But these are just a kind of sensory bait that captures the mind. For people who are less intellectual, it'll be a game. Somebody will be playing a game and they'll be absorbed in the television or the hockey or something like this. this is, it captures their attention. Uh, but this is hardly volitional. It's something outside of you that, that you require something outside of you. Otherwise, you're basically people are, they don't know what to do with unstimulated silence or unstimulated activity there's something terrible for them it's going to be restlessness and boredom is, is the only way they experience that now it doesn't really occur to people that they're in a terrible trap i mean sometimes it does cases like somebody's worked for 15 years and then they lose their job and 
they can't really afford to go out much. And day after day after day, they have to get up and face no structure. It's purely up to them. And so they, well, they watch TV or something, but they, they become, it's, it's a terrible experience for them. They become depressed. They will take any job just to, you know. So that's a very precarious way of living, to be at the mercy of this uncontrolled, untrained, untamed mind. And people, they might consider themselves disciplined, but uh, it's only when they're externally distracted that they, they can manage this thing. There seem to be a few, a very few sort of naturals at this that somehow they love to go into nature and just sit and contemplate. I think people like uh, Thoreau were kind of naturals with this. You see him giving accounts of spending hours sitting on his front porch and reflecting that he had been in an unusual state of mind. It's hard to pin it down. Sometimes I think, I wonder if he is, had come close to maybe the first jhana. Jhana is a, a not normal or a supernormal condition of mind in which the mind is not grinding away in a restless motion, lost in memories or in the future and in the present. And for most people, they'll go through their entire life without having a glimpse of this. But some people like Thoreau. He finds something in nature. He finds something in solitude and so forth. He's blundered on it by himself. But um, he doesn't have language to express it. And he's just, he's quite critical of uh, ordinary people. He's the one that coined that term. Most humans live lives of quiet desperation. And when it, whenever the idea of the humans come into his mind, he, he says they're, he comments on them, he says, they're not just active, they have the what's called the St. Vitus dance. Now this is a, a nervous condition which uh, causes people to tremble and move without control. So it's a, a shaking kind of disease. And so his opinion of why people are active all the time is that there's nothing particularly meaningful about their actions. It's the St. Vitus dance. And uh, so you can see him, he's coming to it as a self-taught contemplative. But he's a rare bird in that sense. Now this is what monks are in fact trained to do. And because you have instruction and, and uh, encouragement and examples all around you of how to do this, you can learn to do it very proficiently. Thoreau, however much he managed, he still would remain an amateur. You know, the word amateur is one who loves. He loved the idea, but he was not really a professional at it. You know, but even as in his amateur status, he appears extraordinary to people. So this is the nature of the mind untrained. Now the Buddha had a a phrase for this, he called it the ordinary uninstructed worldling. 
the ordinary uninstructed worldling thinks this, the ordinary uninstructed worldling thinks that. So he talked about, when he uses that phrase, he's talking about people who are have no insight into this, have no glimpse of the possibility of the contemplative mind. And even when we use words like contemplative and meditation, ordinary people still think it's some sort of, you're contemplating something, you're, you're thinking about something. It's a mystery to uh, people what meditation, real, actual meditation, samatha, serenity, stillness meditation is. Many people have taken up this uh, mindfulness meditation, and which is a great help because you have to face your mind, and it's kind of refreshing and pushes the restart button and makes you gives you certainly face to face with the chaos of your mind, and uh, that's a startling experience to begin with. Quite often, you know, people will come on a retreat, and by the third day of a ten day retreat, they run away; they will leave. I have a rule here that I don't let people come on 10-day retreats unless they have experience. They have to at least done five days or seven days before, so they have some idea what's going to happen. And I, I established the rule because I, I see that uh, I remember myself what, it, what it's like to just be plunged into a you know five or six days of actually total meditation. It's just uh, astonishing. It's like being trapped in an elevator for a week. <laughs> It's an amazing experience, and really, people should not um, be shocked like that. It doesn't have to be so difficult, and if you come to it gradually, you will eventually get to the idea of seven days. But it's a real shock for a person who has not meditated to do that. We had a we had a, one fellow I I gave exemption to. He was a professor of psychology at. UBC, and he was interested in uh, meditation or the study of meditation and meditators and so forth. And he wanted to come on a on a ten day retreat. And he had on the form he had not meditated before. So we said, "Well, you can't you, know, you can't join an extended retreat like this because I'm going to meditation." And he wrote back, you know, explaining that he was a professor of psychology and that he studied the effects of mindfulness on people and all this kind of stuff, and that he he thought he should. You know, go on. So I said, well, okay, you know, he sounds like, you know, anyway, he came here. He didn't, he had left on the fourth day. <laughs> I saw he was, he was out in the woodshed looking at pieces of firewood, like trying to just find anything to possibly <laughs> get interested in. He's typically like an academic or intellectual type of person doesn't realize how unsuited they are for this kind of stillness meditation. Quite often, somebody that uh, doesn't read and so forth might be a little more at ease with the situation, but somebody whose endless activity of the mind is quite often has more difficulty with this until they learn to um, learn how to let go of endless discursive activity. They have this secret sense, so they're quite often people who read a lot and think a lot. They might skip dinner, they might not be preoccupied with sensory experiences, they don't watch the hockey game on TV, they don't. They consider themselves kind of 
a, a kind of a marginalized class of people, intellectuals, cultured people. And uh, they often feel themselves not, they, they feel like they've, they're sophisticated enough that they're not swept away by all these toys that people collect and all these games people play. Thoreau was commented on uh, games and he said, it is a characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things. <laughs> so it begins to strike the uh, certain level of sophisticated mind that the idea of people playing games, especially adults, as a, the, the people involved in this don't understand it. But if, if you have some glimpse of the fact that life is has limits to it and you're going to die and, and why are we here and everything. This idea of playing a game is kind of, you lose the spirit of playfulness of these structured games. You might be playful in your personality or something, but you, the idea of playing a game is just, please no. So that person, that intellectual person might be very startled by the challenge of actually putting down their secret sensory hit. See, they've got an addiction and a hit, and that is books and ideas. So they they read and read and read and read. And as long as they got their books, but take away their books, see what happens. Take away their ideas. See what they refuse to engage in intellectual strategies. And then they feel the withdrawal. They know what it's like for somebody who is reliant on nibbling food all day long or can't turn the the, the local pop radio off. It's got it's got to play all the time. The TV's got to be on and the radio got to be on all day long from morning to night. And, and sometimes some people do not turn it off at night. They feel uncomfortable without some sort of stimulus going on. Yes, it's a drug. The activities that we busy ourselves with yeah. to fill the void, right? Mm. To distract ourselves away from facing the mere existence. Mm -hmm. So then we meditate to bring down that restlessness, among other things. How is it different from taking a real drug instead? A pill that would make you content. Is it comparable? Yeah, well, some people, that's all we can hope for. Um, and most people, like, I wouldn't go down to the downtown east side, you know, Hastings and Maine, and try to yeah. get the junkies to meditate. It's just not going to happen. They're in a frantic state of a total loss of mindfulness. And so, and that's what a doctor feels like when a patient comes in through the door. Somebody who's an obsessive eating, for instance, eating disorder. And they, you're not going to say, well, stop eating. You know, play tennis instead. <laughs> uh, they know it's just not going to happen. So they're going to give them pills. And also uh, psychiatrists as well. Uh, you know, there's two kinds of psychiatrists. There's kind of talking psychiatry and then there's pill psychiatry. And um, I think that the pill psychiatry is much more popular because... The amount of time and expense and patience it takes to talk for hours and hours and get somebody to have a little insight into themselves is like the doctor just doesn't have time. 
they got 10 minutes and you're out the door and they're going to have to give you something. And it's going to be some sort of lobotomy in the form of a pill. It's going to lobotomize some sort of one or several of your, um, of your hindrances out of control. So for an angry person, the, the doctor doesn't have time to spend five years with you talking you down and trying to talk you out of your anger and so forth. They're going to give you a pill that calms you down. Because you, you last night you beat up your wife, you know, and so forth. This is <laughs> how are we going to manage? We got seven billion people on the planet. We don't have time to, and and they're not willing to participate in this. So, and also these pills. Lots of meditators have said to me that if they hadn't taken drugs, they might not have begun meditating. So the drugs gave them a glimpse of something. The stuff that alters your ordinary type of consciousness, uh, it gives you a, a glimpse into a kind of a different way of seeing reality. And that reality, sometimes if a person is listening to this and has not taken a drug, they don't know what I'm talking about, but it's not just sort of blank reality it's that it suddenly turns all six shades of purple. It's that they suddenly, people appear differently to them. What people say, how they do, what they do with their life and everything, that is an insight, a strange insight. It presents everything in a strange way. The storyline is interrupted and you get a, a kind of a glimpse of a different way of seeing things. But of course, uh, it's not meditation it never will be you will not get the same effect from a drug because it's it's a form of uh, meditation is a training and it requires systematic and repeated efforts very careful efforts as well so you train your mind to what the mind is going to be trained to first of all exceed normal structures that people experience. So you're going to ask it to do something. You're going to give it a little exercise, see if it can do it. Can you watch your breath and not forget that within three breaths? So we give you a little counting exercise. We ask you, okay, you can count the exhalations. One, breathe in, two, done. Now, don't don't wander and don't lose your count. Three, up to five, say, and then start again. So we don't let you count to a hundred because that's kind of a something to do, isn't it? We only let you count to five and then you start again. So you're not going anywhere. It's just going a little circle. So see how long you can go without losing a count. And that counting will also tell you that you're gone. In fact, ordinary person's mindfulness is so poor, they don't even know when they're gone. If I asked people at the end of an hour, how much of that time were you here and how much time were you someplace else, they will not be able to give an accurate account of that. Very commonly, people will not have any clear self ability to self-describe. This is why um, you know, mind readers and future predictors and tea leaf readers and all this kind of stuff can convince people that somebody is talking about them because 
they themselves have no idea who they are or what they are. So almost any description is, oh, that's me. Yeah, that's me. This, the horoscope in the newspapers is, uh, you think, well, yes, I, I think, yeah, that is me. You know, and Then you find out it's the wrong month, so it's your, some other month. And then you think, yeah, that is me too. <laughs> so, so little insight. You're, you're staggering through life blind to your actual nature. So it's by this method. So first of all, you have to tame the mind, and this is the described in the ox herding pictures. It's a series of Chinese or Japanese paintings of. It goes right back to the early Buddhist text of going in search of the ox. Now this, the ox it represents the mind. So you go in uh, to begin with in your spiritual training. You go in search of your mind. And you don't know where it is. It's lost. It's wandering. As as ox. I mean, we're. I suppose we're using a simile that is not common to people these days. Who has oxen anymore? <laughs> or well, we have up here range cattle. <laughs> They're ranging all over the place. Cowboy has to come up and get them and bring them down off the range, but he has to go looking for them first of all. The mind is ranging, and we're going to have to bring it in off the range. And that, first of all, we got to, We don't even know where it is. Finally, we catch a glimpse of our own mind. And then we, the next thing is to catch up to it. And the next thing is to put a ring through its nose. And then you see the tying it up. And then you see the man sitting on the back of the ox. And in the end, you see that the ox and the man disappear. Now... This is also from the time of the the Buddha talks about putting a ring through the nose. So they're actually very similar to breath meditation. You're bringing the mind to the nose, just like you put a, a clip through the oxen's nose to control it. But if it's used to being on the range, it will break the cord and run away. You can't just tie it to a post right away. It wanders. So you give it some moderate kind of, you put it in a corral actually. So one of the ways, if you can't tie it to the end of the, your nose, you can ask it to sort of stay in within your body. Or so you do some walking meditation and you're, and you ask, can I actually be here just walking anywhere within the, the sense of walking in the body without wandering? It's a bigger field for attention. So, you give it some spacious but contained area, and it starts to get used to being contained. Lots of people, this is it's very, I, I was peculiar about the people who live on the streets. Even if sometimes they're taken into a little hostel or something like that, and then they end up back on the streets, and they cannot be contained. Their mind is so wild. By the way, that's not freedom. An untrained mind is not a free mind. People talk about freedom. It's that they're unfree because they're not trained. You get free through training. And only at the highest levels of, of the trained mind are you actually free. Free. Can you describe that? Freedom, for most people, is freedom to, to do something. And where uh, the trained mind is free from having to do something. So you're compelled. This is what they talk about 
for restlessness and agitation. To overcome that hindrance of the mind, this uh, uh, psychic irritant, is like being freed from a cruel master, like a servant who is finally freed. The master never gives them a moment's rest, so they just sit down and they, they have to do this chore, go get me this and come back here, and then they, they just... They never get a moment's rest. There's some somebody compelling them to do things, do this, do that. Well, they, that's agitation, and that's the person thinks that they're free because they're allowed to run around, being compelled by this inner inner agitation and compulsion. But that is not freedom at all. So if you ever get some peace, if that person finally gets peace and they don't feel this inner driven compulsiveness then they will know what it is to be free. Having been freed from indentured service to a cruel and insane master. Yes. Yes, so just to reiterate briefly, the mind by its nature is mindless. You blind to its nature, right? Doesn't know itself. And it is restless and compulsive this would be acquired nature i guess we develop habits that we become enslaved by a servant to an insane and cruel master you said i am reminded of a piece that i made long time ago the 3d animation called inside round the gravity of mind so it was about the mind and this was way before I encountered Buddhism, that is, the Buddhist practice, which it had never occurred to me had anything to do with me or my mind. Just as you said at the beginning, it never occurs to an ordinary person to control their mind. No, it doesn't. It didn't. So I was uninfluenced, paid no attention to the teachings. And the piece was based entirely on just my own uninstructed observation of my mind, noticing how it had its own mind. In other words, noticing that I wasn't the master of my mind. And I could see how it gets pulled here and there involuntarily and sucked into things as if it was subject to some wild, unpredictable gravity field that is the insane, cruel master, this gravity field. So I envisioned this and made this 3D animation with an iron ball floating in an empty room, swirling around and being pulled here and there by the gravity forces of the room. Loosely, the room represented the mind space and the ball represented 
the motion in the mind or the movement of the mind. This is, what did you say, the mind grinding away in a restless motion, orbiting around an idea maybe, attracted but not giving in. And now violently rejecting. So the ball is swirling around, banging into the walls and swirling again aimlessly to at some point, as we see here, start growing spacious, exposing its content, which then dissolved. An important thing, this making the mind spacious and letting the content dissolve. As I came to learn 20 years later as a Buddhist practitioner, content left, it fell in its center, the ball did, that is the mind, it found its center, the sweet spot in the middle of the room where the gravity forces are cancelled out. And there it got still, suspended in the middle of this gravity field where it was weightless, not pulled by any forces, just sitting still in the center, pulsating and glowing white. The room turned white too, and the ball then blended with the color of the room, and the sound that accompanied these events turned into a steady sine wave, something like Ajahn Sumedho's sound of silence. I didn't know at the time why I made it like this, 
this ending or the development towards the ending. It wasn't in my experience. But now when I see these images, they look to me like a liberated mind. Or what is it? This weightless, unburdened, balanced, still undisturbed mind. What is it? The accomplishment of peace, isn't it? People talk about love and peace. That used to be the hippie thing, you know, love and peace. Uh, but notice that uh, ordinary people, they're bored with peace. They can't, they, there's neighborhoods, whole neighborhoods where people are out shouting and looking for trouble. The idea of peace is terrifying to them. If they're not confronting somebody out there or having some friction, they're going to have to face their own mind, which is even worse. It's a worse confrontation. They feel actually relief when they kind of... So this is the Buddha talks about lepers burning their their leprosy-infected areas because leprosy also diminishes all nerve experience. So they can take red-hot coals and put it on their skin, and it actually feels good to them because there's some kind of sensation there. And, uh, and so the person who is constantly in conflict with the world and everything around it, you'll see the restless and cannot settle down. It's painful confrontation, shouting, hitting, uh, all kinds of rages and uh, very unskillful interactions. It's better than being alone with themselves. You'll see this in prisons where somebody is taken in there. They're just a handful out there and they keep getting in trouble and there's little slaps on the wrist and then it just keeps mounting up and again and again, they're back again and again. They step out the door and they have a confrontation right on the sidewalk, start shouting. And, and then finally they, okay, we got to put this person in a cell and then they can't settle down in the cell in the, in the general population. Then they got to put them alone. And then what happens is they, and they're gonna they're shouting and walking around and uh, trying to get attention and then then they try to kill themselves because it is so painful to be with this out of control mind. So this is the all we have to do is imagine the opposite where this is it goes the opposite way that as you train yourself both emotionally and with this. Not intellectually. It's not the intellect that's being trained. It's the it's the capacity for lucidity and presence which is being trained. And then your every interaction with a person is a very special and fully attentive one with a sense of goodwill and patience. And even if they're misdirected what you understand is it's like coming across a uh, you know a puppy or something like this you know you don't you're not surprised that they run around and so forth and you speak to them in a pleasant way and you pet them and you talk to them and you're very patient with them so that's why you, you recognize the untrained mind and why people are acting and doing this so that's the interaction that the wherever they go they're going to have this uh, kind of a calm and positive 
interaction, the opposite of the other one, dysfunctional, aggravated, uh, frictional. And even if somebody else is quite out of control, even shouting and everything, they'll you'll see that they they don't participate in it. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking how the mind is very adaptable, how it will easily conform to its environment, yeah. to whatever the environment is calling for. Just thinking about Aboriginal people who can sit still for hours and be content with doing nothing. Yeah. Even my grandma could do that. Contrary to how we are, the modern urban man, hyperactive, dependent on these activities, conditioned by them, not in control. Yeah. But can we also say that those cool and peaceful Aboriginal people are not in control either? That they are peaceful because they too are conditioned that way by their environment? So that is not the higher peace we are talking about here, right? Yes. Yeah, uh, that's a form of innocence, and uh, that is uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. And that's also sometimes in childhood, early childhood, you know. Uh, the mind hasn't been uh, subjected to, uh, enough thoughts haven't been stirred up yet. Also, like a, an Aboriginal community is, uh, and we're all, we're all from an Aboriginal community. We're all, at some point, we were living in caves and wandering around and and that's our genetic uh, structures we dwelled in this natural way but how did then a dysfunctional chaotic culture grow out of this if those states of peace and everything were better then how did we get here we got here because all those states were better, they weren't because of wisdom. They weren't self-informed. They didn't know why they were at peace. So the peace is very contingent on their environment and their social structure. And uh, so when that support structure falls apart, then the individual within it has no idea how to sustain a sense of well-being. So this is what happens with interrupted cultures. You can see they fall apart. Each individual within it is shattered. Um, they're easily prone to addictions and so forth because uh, there's a little, again, being drunk to the point where you pass out is better than being awake. Remember a clip from a movie, I think it was a, about a jazz player in Paris, I think Coleman Hawkins or somebody. It was a, there was a movie about the, the American black American jazz players went to Europe because they, there was a lot less discrimination and everything. They were accepted, appreciated, and they, but they some of them were troubled because they'd been raised in a racist kind of horrible structure. And this guy was at, this a sax player, and he was at at a bar and the guy beside him had ordered a few drinks and put them back quite quickly and then on the last one he, he fainted like straight from the standing position at the bar just lost consciousness so he said to the bartender I'll have what he had 
<laughs> so that that's a beautiful consciousness when it's disturbed is inclined to seek what's called vibhava tanha, the thirst for annihilation. And people treat drugs in different ways depending on their basic configuration of personality. One way away from the horrible experience of being with yourself without distraction is to create an adventure, seek an adventure. And if you can take a drug which will enhance the seeking of that adventure, that's your bhava tanha, thirst for becoming, the thirst for more experience. So the person will, when they go out to a bar, it's to have a kind of exciting time, uh, stay up a lot and uh, interact and collect experiences and, and so forth. And uh, they will prefer drugs which will extend that. So things like methadrine or you know what used to be called speed or any kind of accelerants will enhance that. Uh, occasionally uh, hallucinogens will enhance that as well. But their motivation is driven by a greater experience. And then the opposite is, you can see the other one, is that they're, they drink to, to pass out. They don't drink to enhance adventure, they drink to pass out. So that's the opposite, vibhava tanha, the death wish. There's the life, the clinging to life, the desperate attempt for life. And this is like Freudian ideas. But of course, it's, it's, this is, this, I'm talking from a Buddhist point of view, this is long before the West understood this. There's some basic drives, three basic sense drives. One, one is towards death. It's the death wish. And you'll see it manifested in... So you sleep all the time. It's a form of death. You sleep better than being conscious. You take drugs which annihilate. And you take too many of the drugs. You know, not just to experience it, but until you pass out. And, uh, and maybe you try uh, dangerous things. You, you walk through the, out in the street in traffic, you know, and you're kind of half wishing that some, a car will hit you. Or you actually do try to kill yourself. Or you actually do kill yourself. And then uh, there's the opposite. is like you keep uh, going on desperate adventures, uh, hanging off of cliffs and stuff without ropes and... Uh, in order to enhance the experience of life. And you can't, it's hard to bear when you're in ordinary experiences. You, you need uh, stimulus and your drugs will be, you know, kind of something that will help you party for 72 hours or something. And then there's just uh, the way most people do it is sensory addictions. They will eat too much. They've put away a whole, you know, bag after bag of of vinegar and ketchup potato chips or something like this is some and of course it can be very refined it can be going out to very refined restaurants and let's see spending a lot of money for the next level of refined taste for this and that this is sensory uh, something to see something to hear you have gradations of this but these are sensory this is called a uh, uh, kama as K-A-M-A, not, not karma. So this is a addiction to sensory experiences. And this is a drive as well. You try to get some 
relief from life. And you, you're kind of chalking up, yeah, I went to 17 of these restaurants. I drank such and such a wine with this label on it. And I, I went to, uh, I went to Paris and then I went, I heard the symphony and then I had a, you know, I had an affair with the princess and on and on and so forth. These are, uh, an investment away from your existential situation into, uh, Kamatanha. This is called Kamatanha, thirst for uh, sensory experiences. So you train your mind, you train your mind to not need any of these things. So it won't need anything. It won't need life. So you don't train it for life. Yeah. One is not clinging to life, but one is not desiring death either and to neither I mean it's a problem if you're clinging to life then anything that threatens that is fearful so you're going to be in a situation of fear and afraid of of the the inevitable see why is it unsatisfactory because you die you can't avoid it and so it's not a good strategy but to try to cancel yourself is also totally unsatisfactory it's so unsatisfactory that you're hoping that death will solve the problem. And you see, if you have a materialist, annihilationist viewpoint, theoretically it does. But uh, from a Buddhist point of view, it doesn't. Death doesn't cure suffering. Only wisdom cures suffering. Death is not the cure for suffering. By the way, one should think about this a lot. This is like the... Uh, we're, we're in a society now that is trying to legalize euthanasia and make much easier legal suicide, suicide by choice. And they're, they're getting themselves in a terrible kind of tangle because maybe you could understand it for somebody who is absolutely irrecoverably sick or something like that. But then, you know, you think there's a whole philosophy out there. Well, I'm 75. I'm in good health good clear mind I should do it now because if I wait it's going to be all downhill from here why wait why wait till you're sick and got a bit of dementia to do it because then you might you can't organize yourself you can't maybe you won't decide you won't be able to decide so now you're in clear mind and good health now's the time to terminate right interesting uh, where does, I mean, the, the types of ideas that people are going to get, they're going to be terribly tangled. So from a Buddhist point of view, it's just, well, you know, you're not going to get past the problem by doing it this way. They say, but I, you know, I don't, there's nothing after this is, that terminates it. But if you really think about that, you're not going to experience if, if that's the case, you're not going to experience the relief. You're not going to be free from your suffering. Since annihilationist ideas of death are not an experience that you have. If it was an experience, it wouldn't be annihilation. So you're not going to experience relief from your suffering. But you'll stop it. It stops, but you don't, you're not there for the stop. You can't possibly experience anything but your conscious life. And so you're not going to experience relief from your suffering. 
people don't think about it. They think then I will, I won't be suffering. But that's an that's you're somehow talking as if you're annihilated and and going ah, I'm not suffering anymore. You're never going to have that experience from annihilation's point of view. You can't. Death, in that case, is not an experience you could possibly have. And the relief from life is not an experience that you could possibly have. You're never going to experience relief. If you're in great pain and you think, I'll kill myself and I'll, I will be out of pain. I will be out of pain? No, no. You're not going to have that experience. <laughs> because you. that's... And that's an idea that somehow you're going to feel the relief of this. No. It's just when you get to, when you go into a, have an operation, and they come in and give you this, they get they come in and give you little pillars, you know, like this, and then the next thing you know, you're in the bed, and um, and somebody comes in and says, "How are you?" And I say, "Fine." And when, when's the operation? And I say, "Oh, it's all over." And this like this. Uh, stuff that they give you the the date rape drug <laughs> you it's such a deep annihilation of experience that you don't have any sense of the time went by or anything happened or the whole surgery took place and everything and you you're just you're just waiting for the surgery to happen and then you're and you're there's no experience of uh, that anything has happened and you're being talked to and it uh, that so it's it's a it's a non-experience. You you just don't have the experience. So you know perhaps somebody else is relieved at your death, and that's what happens. So see, people they want to put somebody out of their misery, right? Guess whose misery that's going to get put out of you? They're going to die, and you're going to be out of your misery because you're still alive. But from an annihilationist point of view, they're not out of their misery. They're not. Period. They're not. There is no possible way of experiencing the cessation of your own suffering from an annihilationist point of view. Right? This is something that people have not processed. Any, but any really thoughtful person has. You read Wittgenstein and everything. He's he's clear about this. This is something I came up with myself. At some point, I was probably 18 or 19. I said, wait a sec, you can't really experience death. If death is annihilation, then you can't experience it. I think anybody who really thinks about that will realize if it's the end, you can't experience it. So anyway, uh, back to... The thing is that ultimately, ultimately, you're training to get out of the cycle of life. Yes, Yes. And that cessation of suffering you know, is going to end within your life. It's going to be an experience within your life. And that's the only experience of the cessation of suffering you are ever going to have. There's no way of talking about having some sort of cessation of suffering except when you're alive. And this is what... Uh, for Christians, heaven occurs after death, right? And for Buddhists, enlightenment occurs always while you're alive. 
It's not something that occurs after you die. It has to occur while you're alive. <laughs> yes, but it doesn't concern your life, if you know what I'm saying. You're freed from life. Yeah, it's very, very difficult, you know, because you're going to dissolve the person you are. This is why when people here talk about being without, free from desire and all that, they imagine, like, what would that be like to have no desire? I mean, I have all these desires. I don't want to get rid of them. I want them fulfilled. It's kind of like being at a certain stage, maybe going to university or something like that, and uh, you have all kinds of pressures on you. You may not like what you're studying. You may not really want to be there. And even the so-called training or profession that you're going to do in order to get a job at the end of it, you may not, you really do not want to be doing this. But there's no way out of it because you are, you are a certain person from a certain family. And you're not going to be working at Walmart the rest of your life or a logger or something. It's just not possible, not with your parents, not with your conditioning, not with who you are. It's not possible. You feel you have to do this and yet you don't like it, but you have to and you don't like it. And then somebody says, well, why don't you just quit? Why don't you just walk down the Pacific Crest Trail instead of this? <laughs> I would like to, but I can't because I there are expectations about... I can't just not... That would not be me. Because you got to... Especially at that age, you have a sense of who you are and it's supposed to be. And there's this sense that... How, how can you escape this? It's a nice dream. Why don't I just get on a sailing boat and go to Tahiti and so on. I had crew on it, you know. So some of my friends did that and so forth. But like, it's and when you see somebody else sort of just skip out of all of the terrible burdens and responsibilities that you have to, for some reason, you have to do, it's a, like, why me? Like, what do, you know, but at the same time, you can't kill this person. To abandon this would be like killing yourself. Now, that's what happens. Some people do. In fact, it's they come up with this idea, I'll fake my death. Then I won't have to I won't have to explain it to anybody. I won't be a failure in others' eyes. I won't have to I'll 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 arrange it so everybody thinks I died. Then I I can be myself. Like I won't have to live up to everybody's expectations. You'll see you'll see this happens occasionally <laughs> somebody there's a, there was a an Australian politician, he was a cabinet minister or something, and he swam out to sea and never came back, and they thought he died. Well, 10 years later, he showed up in Europe. You know, so well, he had a family, the whole thing. He, he couldn't get out of it any other way. Faked his own death. So it's interesting. You know, you've got to fake your own death. Why not just realize that it's, it's all a story, and you don't have to be any of those selves, uh, those try undoing this. Now, this is what meditation can help you do, is to see how story-ridden you are. And so this is also what the Buddha is under this pressure. He's a prince. 
and about to he he's the he's the future king and at the same time he it's meaningless to him and he has to more or less terminate himself he he disappears one night he's also married and has a his child has, his first child has just been born and he's got all these pressures and everything he just goes over the wall one night disappears yes life is meaningless but what is meaningful and is there such a thing one can maybe say that a meaningful thing is to just not do meaningless things and yeah. that is all one can say i don't think things are meaningful or even activities are meaningful people talk about it's meaningful to me etc but as you become more reflective you think well yeah i used to what i thought was meaningful was that i was absorbed in it and for a while i didn't have my this basic existential problem so uh it's something that makes you kind of forget yourself for a while but uh if you are more contemplative and or meditated actually enhances your existential situation and you realize this is just a trivial distraction all i'm doing is distracting myself from the realization this is the myth of sisyphus you know this uh, albert camus book uh, the myth of sisyphus he has to roll his rock up this mountain and just before he gets to the top it it always slips away and has to, he has to go back down and roll it back up so he's he's illustrating what 20th century philosophers especially especially anybody with an nihilist or annihilationist materialist annihilationist doctrine has is that whatever they're doing is absurd absurd in the meaning that you can never accomplish the it's not going anywhere you're going to have to roll this thing up and you already know that you're not going to get to the top it's going to slip away and you're going to have to go back down to the bottom and do it again and this is what going to work is at a job etc but it occurs to you like this job doesn't go anywhere one one day i retire and then, and everybody who i work with dies and i die and then a whole bunch of other strangers do things like this and it has no reference no meaning it doesn't go anywhere and eventually it's just forgotten about and um and if you are aware of that and if you can't get rid of that awareness you're in a kind of uh you're in touch with reality it's true and then all people try to do is forget about it so some people use methods such as drinking alcohol <laughs> frequently <laughs> or absorbing themselves in hobbies and stuff anything to get away from this mm-hmm. sometimes it catches up to them they, they they just fall apart what is meaningful well this is yeah the buddha is solving this at a very high level he's not avoiding this like you get a lot of pep talk from uh, sort of limited sort of the christian healthy mind kind of stuff is like you know shape up you know and just do your best go to work and uh, you know be an honorable this and that and uh, and it it doesn't speak to the person who's like but you don't understand 
this is absurd. You apparently don't get it, and that's why you're you're so sunny and healthy is because the horror has not hit you yet. <laughs> you you're you are incapable of understanding that you are in an absurd dance and you're you're telling me to to be healthily involved in this nonsense, you know, so Somebody who's a little bit bright now, for a certain level of person, that's fine. That's so so-called healthy minded. They they don't seem to have the existential problem. Bless their hearts, you know. Like this has gone into in uh, William James's varieties of religious experience, and you will see he he's very interested in tracking this. And I really think uh, the more I read about James, I know that he's 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 one of these. One of the first modern men, just like Nietzsche is, and Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy, they're Sartre. All, all these, they're, they're they're the first modern men in what we have created in the West. And William James is coming out of a, he's he's having to, he's so bright, and he has to deal with these thoughts, which he is, he, I mean, he will have read all of Nietzsche. He will have contemplated the materialist annihilationist idea and so forth but he's coming out of a of a society which is doesn't even talk about things like that it's it's a religious society at some level maybe they don't all go to church but there's this assumption and he is starting to it's he's you can see in his diaries he's he's working on these issues and arguing them back and forth with himself so he he proposes that He's trying to do a workaround, and he comes up with this idea of um, that the solution is, does it work? Not whether it's absolutely true, but does it work? And uh, so it's a kind of a, a utilitarian thing. How does it allow you to be and so forth and it in its truth is found in that practical experience of it rather than some sort of ultimate truth yeah but what is meaningful <laughs> yeah well it, outside the cycle of life the answer for the buddha is nibbana is the meaning of life or the final goal but it is not in life it is in life and it will never be anywhere else. Mm -hmm. There is no possibility of experiencing something except while you're alive. There is no nothing to be experienced in death. There is no experience of death, and there is nothing to be experienced in death. And death never occurs to a person because it's... This is uh, some. This is in a sense where you have to be a logician to understand this, and it, it's logically impossible to experience death. I mean, this is where you have the two schools of philosophy: this existential philosophy, and then you got analytical philosophy. These guys that are doing the, all the logic symbols and the converting the logic into math, and they're called philosophers, and they're philosophers of language, philosophers of this and that. And um, then there's the your existential philosophy, like whatever with the math 
games, you know, like what are you, you're just avoiding your existential situation, you know, it's whatever, let's go drink cognac and at the apricot cafe, you know, whatever it is. Apricot cat cocktails, no, cocktails at the apricot cafe or whatever it was, what the, where, uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre, they, they started the day with cognac, you know, like they really had to, a cognac and a smoke. And whatever about your logic stuff, come on, you know. They, by the way, they're, they're they're extraordinarily bright. They, they could have done the logic of some. With some amazing stuff, they were thinkers. And yes, absolutely, absolutely. They're they're like, brilliant people, but they the game. Uh, there's another school of philosophy that is like they don't want to talk about this existential whatever. Uh, they're 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 converting logical structures into formulas and stuff. It's called the analytic school. Anyway, the analytic school can do one thing, and that is it can realize that it's just an inherent, logically impossible contradiction to talk about experiencing death or or a human dying or something like that because it is it's a it's a lot it's a, a false projection. You're imagining somehow that you're alive and dead at the same time. You you're never going to die. You can't die because that's an experience. And if death is not an experience, then you're not going to experience it. So that's that that's the just analytical logic, see. Ajahn. Yeah. Is all human activity besides the single minded pursuit of nibbana meaningless? Ultimately it goes nowhere and um all that I have, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Every skill, every relationship, every accumulation, everything you have to lose. And therefore, it can't be the goal. There can't be a goal in a transient universe. It's all ultimately absurd. At the Suzuki said, he was a Japanese Zen philosopher who had uh, an acquaintance with the European. He's an interesting character. Uh, basically, I read most of his stuff. It's one of those things you get to the end of one of Suzuki's books and you think, I don't understand a word he said. And while you're reading it, you think, yeah, yeah, right. I, yeah, that's exactly, yeah, exactly. And at the end, you think, no, it just, it's gone. It's like they wiped it out of your mind. That's the same with being and nothingness by Sartre. So the reading on, no, no, let's start again. <laughs> it's 800 pages. You got to start and <laughs> get to the end of it. Nothing. Krishnamurti's like that too. Nothing. So, um, so Suzuki, but Suzuki had some things that people remember. And one of the things is he was talking, it was asked about the existentialists. European existentialists, especially absurdists, because there's different types. There's uh, Kierkegaard is a is a Christian existentialist. Dostoevsky is a Christian existentialist. Tolstoy ends up being a kind of a, a Christian existentialist. And then there's the annihilationists. They're absurdists, and he says they see the void, but they don't jump in. This is what he said about Sartre's writings. 
he, they see the void, but they don't jump in. Because they're uh, apprehending the void through intellect and not really authentic freedom. You'll see these uh, paintings sometimes in uh, Japan of a monk walking in empty space. Very happy, relaxed, walking in empty space. And this is a kind of like, this is really what you're doing. You're not going anywhere. Just like this planet isn't going. We're, we're, we're rocketing around the sun and uh, uh, spinning through space, but we're not going anywhere. Yes, but where would we go? When Joe asked, is every participation in life meaningless or absurd? You said, ultimately, yes, it's not going anywhere. So I want to ask you, why does it need to go anywhere? Well, because it's, it's absurd if it doesn't. It, absurd why? means that it's, it doesn't have a goal, a final goal. And all of the goals are pretend goals. Let's go to the top of that ridge. Now we... So now we have something to do for the afternoon. And this is what people do. They, why, why, why not halfway to the top of the ridge? Why to the top of the ridge? Why to the top of Everest? Why not to the base camp? Why? All activities are just randomly chosen exercises in, uh, why not, why, let's go to the North Pole. I mean, what, what are these expeditions? Like, why go to the North Pole? Why? Well, and when you get there, and you, then you have to come back. And then now, and now what? Well, now we have to go to Mars. And after we go to Mars, and then, because there's a terrible, terrible existential dread that is being avoided there. As long as we got this project to go to the moon, and then we got to go to Mars, and then we, we had to go across the ocean. We have to go somewhere, because then we have a goal for a while, and we can forget. It, because it's, and then what? Exactly. Yeah. Then what? Then nothing. Can one not approach things without that compulsion or idea of something? Just take life just as life is? Without trying to outsmart nature? Yeah. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. Can you not participate in... Something that never gets resolved. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There are no results. There are no results. You're walking in a circle. Yes, there are no other lines to walk. Yeah, yeah. That's the shape of the universe. And if you stepped out, where would you go? What could be your goal? Something outside of your experience. Hard to even conceive of. How can we call it a goal? The end is something like Nibbana. Uh, the because nibbana is inexpressible. The Buddha is always, always, never could say what it was. Yeah. Because it's beyond words, it's beyond experience, and so it's not something you can say. But it's the ultimate goal.